Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unmuted, the podcast by Big Karma, in which all entertainment industry insiders come and reveal their secret shows about how the stuff we love is made, and Big Karma produces uh, video games starring kick-ass action heroes who leverage the disability to win. You can find out more about that on our patreon.com slash bigkarma, join our community, pay for our next coffee. And our guest today on the show is Brendan Gahan, who is credited as the first man who paid a YouTube uh, channel, which was Smash at the time, uh, for a promoted collab, a sponsored video. It was in 2006, if I remember correct, a long, long time ago, maybe 2005. He's become a legend in the space in influencer marketing, collaborating with YouTube creators, and now also obviously on other platforms like TikTok and whatnot. His views on his blog are always very enlightening. I'm an avid reader of uh, brandongahan.com. Subscribe to his newsletter if you're interested in influencer marketing and creator economy. Uh, definitely worth a read every week. And let's get right in to talk about the evolution of YouTube over time. Hey, Brendan. Nice to see you. It has been a very long time since we last talked, and I'm very excited for this one. I've been chasing you for weeks. I'm and... sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Actually, it's. I'm surprised that I even got you because you're such a busy man. I appreciate uh, your presence in such a small podcast where we talk about secret souls and, you know, uh, the, the, the marketing know-how for people who, who wonder how the stuff we love is made, basically. Well, thanks for and, inviting me. I'm pumped to be here. And, and you, you might not be aware of that, although I've told you that once, but you probably thought I was just pandering. I've been a fan of yours, and I kind of, kind of owe you. There are other people to whom I owe something too. But I kind of owe you to open my eyes about the fact that YouTube was the next place to be like eight, nine years ago. And my career changed after. Obviously, I had a few encounters with Phil Hickey, the man from Best Things in My Back. You know, you need somebody to give you a shot because when I opened my eyes, it was in Germany and none of the higher ups were believing my intuition and my anecdotal evidence. So I still had to find somebody who had the budget, but several things you said. One was for youth today, YouTube stars are the only stars. <laughs> and that was the first time I heard you say that, that was in 2013. I'm not sure when you started saying it, what crystallized this in your mind? Because, you know, they, are, they were, other things that were pointing at it for me, but I'd like to hear how you came to that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think I came to it. So my first job in advertising, I, I like, I got an internship in advertising right out of uh, college, and and um, and then I got hired, and it was the early days of social, and for me, like, you know, I was a broke you know, basically college kid right out of college. It was just what I was consuming. You know, this is 2005, 2006. You know, I was spending my time on MySpace, Facebook, 
and YouTube. And I was seeing these kids just blow up on YouTube. And, and so I just sort of started randomly like throwing ideas out there in, in meetings and like, I had no business doing that, but some of them stuck. <laughs> and in 2006, like we, we did this project with Smosh, who's a big, you know, they're still big YouTubers. Um, and they crashed the brand's website. And so pretty much from that point on, it was sort of like the, uh, that, that like intuition was confirmed. And I was sort of like, I felt like for the next five or so years of my career, like screaming, like, no guys, this is the thing. This is the thing we got to do. Like, this is the thing that works. This is the way to we, you know, reach kids. And then, um, I mean, and more than kids, but, uh, so pretty I'm mean, pretty much my entire career it's what I've thought maybe you know in terms of like being able to articulate it and pitch it that's evolved but it, I would say pretty much from the jump <laughs> that was uh and, and I, I don't think it was like necessarily like this big insight for me it was more like right time right place you know I was like the young kid in the office with a bunch of adults who were like, well, what do kids care about? And I'm just like, well, this is what I'm doing. You know, so it wasn't like this like big insightful thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just sort of, well, this is what I'm doing. Why, why don't we spend money here? <laughs> this resonates with me, I gotta tell you, because I, I, I owe my accidental career, age 20, discovering the internet, discovering, finding yeah. out on a, on a library, uh, on a computer of, at the library at university and realizing, you know, what's possible and then hooking up with the nerds and just doing, you know, like that village mentality. This is just what we do. And yeah. when I faced all the people who wanted to figure out business on the internet, it was like you, like, well, obviously, I mean, this is just what I do. I don't know why. I don't know the statistics. I don't know the data. Yeah. It just seems like what my friends would do. A hundred percent. And then you get to ride that wave. Right. But you wrote it really from, because it's funny that you say, I felt like screaming, this is the place to be. Because for me, I started in 2013 and I had only two or three years of screaming. And then influencer marketing picked up, you know, we can see it from the Google search data yeah. and all that. It really became obvious. And nowadays, I don't think we even have to sell it to anyone anymore. It just come to us. Yeah. But I had only two or three years of screaming. You from 2005, you must have felt like a decade of convincing old people that they were doing things wrong, right? Yeah. Uh, sort of. And I, I mean, I would say I had a lot of that time was like a lot of self doubt too. Like I, I, I certainly can't take credit for a lot of my career because it was sort of like, I had periods of time where like I would go to my boss and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't see a future in it. Nobody wants to do this or not enough people want to do this. Like um, you know, I want to, I want to do this other thing because I see like whatever, like, you know, uh, interactive producers doing really well or whatever. And like to, to, um, you know, he, he's my, my boss now. And 
Um, but to, to Jason Harris, the president and CEO of Mechanism, to his credit, he was like, no, dude, like you're, you're on to something. Just keep, keep, keep doing this. Like, I promise it'll be good. It'll pay out and it'll, you know, work out in the long run. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't like I had this totally like, um, just like this resolve that was like, so defined. I was like, I think very insecure. Like I would see the results, but at the same time, it was like not what the market at the time really wanted. And so there was like a lot of confusion and self-doubt, especially as like a younger, you know, kid, basically. I'm like, maybe I'm wrong. Like I, I, everybody else, <laughs> everybody else is more senior. Like I, clearly I'm the one that doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I got to tell you, nowadays, it, so nowadays, as you may know, Big Karma, the company I am I'm getting off the ground, we're working on disability representation in gaming, and we feel we stumbled upon something. And there as well, we are early, and we have to do a lot of convincing. And my partners tell me, but how are you so resilient? And I tell them it's my third rodeo, guys. <laughs> I did the internet in China in 1998 oh, before God. China entered the WTO. So convincing people that manufacturing in China was the future, I sounded like a crazy guy, completely crazy guy. But oh, I was going wild. there, you know, and I was seeing what was happening and I was seeing a subway appear in six months in Shenzhen when I was going away. And then a hospital, and then this factory, and then the MP3, and I was seeing a speed that That's I had never wild. seen before. Yeah. But I was young, and I thought it was the norm that you had to have 30 meetings to make one sale. Yeah. I didn't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that some business were turning over faster. But then two or three years later, it became an advantage for me because I haven't yeah. been there earlier, I had experience. But again, like you, accidental uh, luck, encountering the right people, rolling with the flow, lots of imposter syndrome, oh, uh, yeah. lots of self-doubt. Am I actually sure of what I said right now? And <laughs> but yeah. the second time for me was YouTube in 2013. I started. It was difficult at the beginning to have a few clients, but again, I saw. <clears throat> At some point, the intuition got confirmed, data was out, signals were proving. There were your theories of even how it works at the neurologic level, which I will really get into that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no, yeah, now that I do it the third time, I'm like, well, sometimes it's good to be too early. Because by the time people come in and say, that's it, now we want to flock to it. You have the experience, you have the process, you have the system. And you did it slowly because you had few clients. Yeah. Where I've seen, you've seen too, we can get into that topic if one, the following generation of MCNs who build themselves quickly and based on quantity and numbers, mm -hmm. uh, the quality and the longevity was not the same, was it? No. Uh, overall, I would say not, not so much. And, um, but yeah, I agree. It's like, it's interesting. Like, um, it's sort of like, uh, when you're, when you're early, um, you can kind of like, 
be a big fish in a small pond. And then when that pond gets bigger, everybody's like, that's, you know, you've got this kind of this momentum and gravitational pull. You've got um, the ability to sort of um, you've 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 carved out a name for yourself to a certain extent. And so you really benefit from the the ecosystem as a whole growing. And then, you know, you kind of grow in proportion to it or if maybe even faster than it as a whole, which is pretty I mean, it's a it's a really good place to be. And it's something that you, you know, it's a pattern. I think you can sort of see that time and time again. You know, it's YouTube and then it's TikTok. And now I feel like it's like Web3. There's always like a new way to sort of ride to a certain extent. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're right. If you're there early, you carve your credibility, but also your relationships. Yeah. Because it's just a village at the beginning and you can fit us all in a bar. And so we we all know each other and we build trust that when there is drama later, because there will be, makes us more, I don't know, there is a band of brothers. Absolutely. Kind of sentiment with people who were there at the beginning of the internet, people who were there at the beginning of YouTube, people who were there at the beginning of China. It's like these young kids, they yeah. don't know what <laughs> absolutely i think i think that's it's like everybody might be competing to a certain extent but everybody wants the ecosystem as a whole to be successful and and those relationships because they were sort of um formed in the most trying time when sort of like you know like in the trenches together it's it's really powerful and i think those are those relationships from the early days for me are still paying dividends today. It's pretty incredible. I, I feel the same way. I've told my wife many times, I would never bring friends in business again because the few times I tried it went terribly. Oh, right. I have made hundreds of friends through trench warfare and work yeah. and dealing against the clock. Uh, yeah. campaign and delivering together or failing together and these are friends for life because we know each other in those moments when our backs were against the wall and yeah i like that yeah <laughs> completely agree and, and if i like you in those moments then you're good a hundred percent but that video that we did with you did with smosh it's credited as the first sponsored video in youtube history wasn't it i mean i i've yet to find out about an earlier one i wouldn't be surprised if there's an earlier one um i'd love it if it was the first one i i don't know that for a hundred percent like with absolute certainty um but uh it, it was pretty early yeah for sure it was 2000 it was in 2006 yeah how did you even come up with the fee? Oh gosh. Um, to be honest, I think uh, so. So I emailed them, I pitched them, I invited them to the office. Luckily, they lived in a suburb of Sacramento, which was not too far away from San Francisco. And they just came down. I think they had a meeting with YouTube or something. So they came down like a week later and um, we just got in a room and I invited one of the one or two folks from the agency that I was at, one of the partners, um, 
joined and uh, we were just like, yeah, we want to do this, yada, yada, yada. And I think you know, we were sort of tiptoeing around what's a number. And then I, I'm pretty sure that um, one of the partners just eventually just blurted out a number. He was just like, nah, what about this? <laughs> it wasn't uh, it wasn't like particularly scientific. I think it was more like we wanted to break this tie of like tiptoeing and just like get throw something out there. And, um, you know, uh, we, we banged out a deal pretty quick. Um, if I remember correctly, I think one of them, I'm pretty sure one of their dads was like an accountant or something. So he's like, oh, yeah, he'll, he'll just take a look at the contract or whatever. And, you know, we'll, we'll circle back. But pretty quickly, we, we knocked out a deal and, um, and then uh, got something out the door, I'm pretty sure, like a month later or so. Was Smosh excited about it or reluctant? Were they afraid of how it would be perceived by the audience? With... What, what was their mood? I think they were excited. Um, I think the, the vibe I got, I mean, this was, you know, gosh, 15 years ago. Um, the vibe I got, if I remember correctly, was they were a little bit apprehensive. Um, like, kind of like holding their cards a little bit close to their chest in the sense that they, um, you know, they made a point of not appearing like over eager and like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this. But, um, you know, I've talked to them here and there, you know, over the years since. And I think for them, it was, um, you know, I don't want to like overstate it, but I think for them, it was like a turning point in the sense that they realized um, there were, you know, real dollars to be made. And, you know, this is a, a, a you know, potentially a, a significant business. And, you know, they've done pretty well, uh, you know, from my understanding over the years. Yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> then there have been ups and downs and drama. Yeah. Obviously, there will be on a show that is live for 15 years. Yeah. Um, there would be on any other medium, by the way. But yeah. I, it's funny what you say. I, I'm wondering if they were posturing, uh, you know, about holding their cards. Maybe oh, I definitely they, they have so. to do that in business. A hundred percent. Because you know. they probably had self-doubt and imposter syndrome as, as much as you at the time. Absolutely. How much can we ask for this? <laughs> I definitely think that's what it was. I think they they had no idea and we had no idea. So they didn't want to come across as like, over eager and like take the first deal that you know came across the table and um you know but they're they were super cool they did a great job and they were like very nice guys and very sweet and um you know professional for two 18 year old kids or whatever you know they were really young at the time it was impressive yeah but that's been impressive with the youtube generation right the the age at which they, it's like when they're 17, they make me think of me at 22. When they're 22, they make me think of me at 28. I, and now that you see Felix Gjallbert when, when he's almost 30, right? And he already has that wisdom mm -hmm. of a godfather who's been around, who's lived through waves and waves. And, and it, I find that amazing that he hit that so young also Casey yeah. Knight, that is an example yeah. like that. 
they 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 really live things at an, at an accelerated pace. I feel. Yeah, yeah, and and oftentimes they're sort of like um, they don't necessarily have a. Uh, I mean, everybody's different, but oftentimes it's really just them. It's sort of them against the world, for lack of a better term. Like they are the star, but they're also the producer and manager sometimes in the beginning yeah and like dealing with that level of fame and and everything i think the people who do well sort of very quickly you know um adapt and and kind of get a a level head on their shoulders whether or not it's something they went into it with or 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 sort of learned and developed i'm not totally sure probably a combination of the two but like I think like tabling sort of like the, the work aspect, the sort of like mindset and the ability to handle that level of, of fame and, and, and an audience. I think, I think that that would probably warp a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I say a lot when I see slip ups from the YouTube stars and people very quickly ostracizing them and throwing stones at them, yeah. or demonetizing, demonetizing them. That's hard for me to say in English <laughs> as a French. But you know, you know how it is. The mob mentality. That Logan Paul was an example um, when he did that video in the forest. Yeah, I didn't like it. It was distasteful. He shouldn't have done it. But the consequences were piling up for weeks, and at some point, I had to say, but hold on. This is a kid with yeah. millions of eyeballs on it. The algorithm tells him to up the ante because this is how he gets the views and the views are his likelihood. I mean, if you had thrown all these conditions at me at age 21, 22, the rapid fame, the, all these things, I don't think I could have handled it. Who are we to judge him so fast when we were 21? If there had been cameras on us and social media documenting everything we did, are we that perfect human beings who never slept and never got drunk and never, never made a mistake, never made a bad taste joke, never did a poor campaign? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. all have skeletons in our closets. There were just not cameras around us at the time. Absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, it, I, I, I think there's a, a level of sort of like fallibility everybody needs to recognize. And I think, um, you know, it, it, it's complicated because like at the same time, obviously they're, they're leaving an impression on a lot of young people, but like for them, it's like they, they they need to make mistakes, but then also like there is like the mob mentality, which I think oftentimes is saying things that are like worse than the you know crime more or less. And oh, you're right. That's a good point. The yeah, it, it creates a really weird sort of ecosystem where it's like what what is I I don't know. Like I I, I wouldn't. I guess kind of going back to like the point like of of how you know you've got to have a good head on your shoulders to be able to handle that like how do you kind of come out the other end of that I, I i don't know i think it'd be really hard and especially in the last few years of wokeism 
peeking into cancel culture. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I really liked your point that you said sometimes the reaction is more aggressive than what was said. I think that cancel culture is a totalitarian act and, and, and behavior. It's the sum of intolerance. So to fight intolerance, you just peaked intolerance to a higher level. It's like fight, yeah. fighting fire with more fire. Yeah. And that is something that is troubling me as of late with the left side of things, because the far right, I hate for many reasons, and they are well documented. And it's not it's not a new phenomenon, but that the, the left is like, no, cancel this, cancel that. And, and the Dave Chappelle, I'm a big fan of Dave Chappelle. So the last example, that last debate, luckily we have a man like that, that is that wise to take this now, uh, yeah. you know, and do it with new ones and, yeah. and navigate that. But you're absolutely right that for 20, 21 years old, something we emerged from his bedroom originally. Now we might have a big mansion and different life and a set and professional and an entourage. But originally, it just happened accidentally. He didn't have all that. He probably didn't have a career plan. Navigating this world is really, really, really tough because you, you're not afford, uh, alone one slip. Yeah. Well, and, and the, you mentioned nuance. There's not a lot of room, room for nuance. You know, when I was talking to Ben Grubbs from YouTube, and now he has his own ventures and he involves uh, through oh, Creator yeah, yeah, yeah. to Creator Plus, invest in film event, long form ventures with uh, the top creators. But he's been around a lot. And while he was at YouTube, he was very worried and working on the best he could on mitigating the problem of burnout cycles. He told me the average burnout cycle for uh, uh, an uh, um, YouTube star, let's call it this way, for, for lack of a better word, somebody who goes through the fame cycle was six years in average. And he had a lot of mental uh, wellness uh, seminars and bringing them together to, to show them that they were not alone um, facing all that. But uh, is this something you've also observed over the last 15 years that this beast is very demanding, not just on how to manage the fame and the career, but also the rhythm of it, the pace of it, the intensity? A hundred percent. I mean, I think, um, you know, even for me personally, I mean, I'm not a professional content creator and... I try and create content and I get burnt out and I don't have the weight of sort of my livelihood, you know, on my shoulders. It's really hard. There's a demand and there's sort of this, um, you know, there, there's a number of factors. There's sort of the, the fact that it doesn't stop, you know, you put something out and you immediately have to start working on the next thing. So that creates a feeling that in and of itself can be exhausting. And then when you layer on top of it, the fact that you're trying to take into account what you want to create, 
and what the audience is reacting to, which feeds into the algorithm. You know, why did this thing, which I was really passionate about, do so well? And why did this not? And why is this guy doing so well? And why am I not? It, it, it's, it's a very confusing sort of headspace to, to navigate. And you can't help but feel like these external inputs have an impact on how you feel. And, um, you know, it's great to say, you know, just do what you're passionate about. But when your livelihood depends upon it, you need to take into account what your audience is passionate about <laughs> and, uh, you know, what advertisers want. And you're constantly sort of creating, doing like this mental calculus that is that is really taxing and exhausting beyond just the sheer amount of work that you need to do. Um, it, it, it's really a right and left brain task and it doesn't stop. And, um, I, you know, yeah, like I said, for, for me personally, the little bit that I've experienced is, a, is sort of like a, you know, creator just for doing it because I, I think it's important for my career, but it is not my career. It's, it's been very, very difficult. So I, I can very much empathize with those who feel burnt out. And let's remember, I was watching an episode, I'm not sure if you're watching Creator Economics by Reed Dusha from Night Media. Oh, I've seen a couple clips. Yeah, he's, I mean, Reed is obviously very, very savvy. There was one recently, there were a few that I liked, but there was one where he was talking with Helios Smith, I think is his name. I, I hope I'm not butchering his name. He's the editor of Logan Paul for many Oh, years. okay. And they were talking about editing and all that. And Helio made a great point about the algorithm changed over the last three years and changes what creators create in consequence. His point was three years ago, and I would agree with that part. I agree with it. Let's see if you do too, Master. Um, he said three years ago, the algorithm was favoring the daily vlogging. It was all about rhythm. Yeah, if you were coming out every day, mm -hmm. clearly the algorithm, you were going on the good side. Which, when he said that, I realized, yeah, that's exactly when the burnout cycle was at its peak, actually. Mm -hmm. Daily stuff, yeah, of course that's going to make you burn out. Mm -hmm. And now he said... It favors much more the sensational big videos a la Mr. Beast or mm -hmm. Mark Wire, where the budget, the editing, everything is top notch, top quality uh, stuff, which leads to another form of um, consequences, which is the high stakes budget. Mm -hmm. Now we are at a poker table where the barriers of entry are starting to rise. And you come from a time in YouTube where it was everybody with a camera can give it a shot. And I love that democratization part of things, that Justin Bieber came from it, that, you know, those moments late at night. But the algorithm is more powerful, I reckon, than I realized a few years ago. A few years ago, I thought it was, 
it's a business thing. Now I realize it shapes cultures, it shapes livelihoods, it shapes mm -hmm. lives. And, and I cannot imagine that there is no human intervention in it either. I don't think it's just artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah. Well, I, I think probably they put their thumb on the scale a little, little bit from like a macro standpoint. I doubt on the like individual creator standpoint. I don't know, although maybe, but, but I do tend to agree. I think, you know, YouTube is, is sort of dealing with uh, an ever changing kind of landscape and they're powered by media dollars. And, you know, they've had a lot of brand safety issues. I can imagine that, on top of that, they're dealing with this landscape where more and more people have like connected TVs, they're making that push. So having higher quality, higher production content is gonna play much better for that medium. There's a lot of factors that they're trying to take into account. And at the same time, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if it's cultural or the algorithm or what, but the the daily vlogger has sort of uh, that sort of died died out. I mean, I, I can imagine them maybe making a conscious decision of being like, let's not prioritize, let's not weight the daily or the frequency as much because these kids are just getting burnt out. I mean. I remember dealing with like vloggers a lot, you know, for a long time, they were sort of like, I mean, they were, they were huge and their audiences were so rabid. And I think because of that, like intimacy, you were, you were being brought into their lives. But at the same time, I remember seeing them and they were like exhausted all the time. Like, you know, we would do brand events and like, you know, they'd come out and be doing things. And then at like midnight, you know, when everybody else is going to bed, they're going up to the room and they've got to edit and they edit until like three or four in the morning and then come out and like, you know, get up same time as everyone else. Like they had to find the time to make that happen. And it's, it's a brutal cycle. Even if you have a team, it can be, be rough, you know? Um, it's an industrialization of the process. Yeah, which yeah. leads to loss of passion and eventually loss of quality. Because yeah. when you, you maybe skip a few details that you were obsessing about earlier. Yeah, perhaps. I, it, I also do think there's something that like with the sort of repetition and increased frequency, I feel like at the same time, it's like important for a lot of people when they're starting out because so much of it is like getting to understand these nuances and at the same time, not overthinking things. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to show up every day, you know, it's like, what is that? You know, um, showing up every day is half the battle. I think with YouTube and, and all social media, that's sort of the case. It's like, you, you've got to sort of like thread the needle of like familiarity, which comes from, repetition and practice and reps, but also being able to take a step back and think about how can I differentiate myself? Like, how can I make each piece of content impactful and sort of like iterate upon 
each episode and each, you know, generate learnings that you can sort of like apply to the next one and the next one. So you can kind of get that compound like interest in hockey stick growth, which is really difficult to do, especially if you're a one man team. That's that's really hard. Yeah, but you're right that there is an element of discipline in it that as an entrepreneur and as any athlete out there, any success story, there is a part of that, of you know, yeah. saying there is only one way to, to learn something, it's reps, reps, reps. And that is mm -hmm. true. And I, I, there is a famous comic book in my uh, writer in my country in Belgium, really mega hit for many years. And now he's age 60, he's been doing it for 30 years. And he says, but I still have the discipline that every morning at 8 a.m. I sit down and draw. Sometimes it's yeah. good, sometimes it's not. But if, some, if my father could go to the bank and if my grandfather could go to the factory every day at 8 a.m., for sure I can wake up and draw a few cartoons every day at 8 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. I like that mentality too. There is something in it. Otherwise you can get lazy and say, I'm going to drop a video every three months because I'm a big... Diva. <laughs> 100%. And like, I think there's sort of like, um, with that repetition, it, it, it allows you to sort of, um, it's, it's almost like learning an instrument. Like you need to learn the basics before you like start playing jazz or something. Like you can't come out of the gates and do like something crazy. Cause then it's like, like the fundamentals are critical. And I think, um, when a lot of people think about like, quote unquote, good content, they think about content that is very well produced or like conjuring up images of like a TV or, or, or film production. But good content is sort of like in the eye of the beholder and like good content is also um, you need to take into account the medium. And so understanding the medium you're working within is really key. And I think the only way you can sort of like nail YouTube, nail TikTok, nail any, you know, Twitter, whatever it's, it's by being there and kind of like, yeah, like getting those reps in and then you can start to get fancy, which, you know, you look at Mr. Beast, like he's been on YouTube for, I mean, I, I can't remember. He, you know, started, yeah. Like, and for many years, he had no views and no subscribers. A hundred percent. And like, I think that that's really, you know, people overlook that. They're like, you know, the last whatever, two, three years, he's been this phenomenon, but like you can still go to his channel and see these crappy Minecraft videos that exist. It's pretty funny. You know, like those videos are just as important to his success as like, you know, the, you know, squid games video that just came out whatever a week ago. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And everybody is now talking about that Squid Game video. But I've, I, I got, let's say I've worked with Mr. Beast a few times and with Reed, and, and I'm really fascinated by this operation and how it grew. I think it's a topic we can get into uh, for many minutes, but you're absolutely right that you cannot get to that without getting your fundamentals. I love that expression because in sports, it's the same. In basketball or football, you, you can see who trains young from the fundamentals. They're not looking at the ball when they run with the ball. They don't need mm -hmm. because they know where it is physically. 
and that's from reps, 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 reps. Yeah. Um, you, you, you said something now about understanding what it is and what you're doing. You wrote a piece back in the daily vlogging era that made me understand a lot about YouTube. I think you did that with a doctor. I don't remember who. Maybe you do. The, the, the thing about the limbic system. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Limbic was, resonance. Yeah, that was fascinating for me because, you know, oh, thanks. I was already doing already quite a few. I was no longer streaming at the time. I had clients. I was booking videos for many video game companies, and we could see the, the, the numbers. And sometimes some of the slick montages were not performing as well as just the guy talking in front of the camera. And, yeah. and it was mind-boggling for us coming from a different marketing world, you know. And then you wrote that piece about the limbic resonance. And I was like, yeah, yeah he's right. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like listening to a friend, right? At the end. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, oh, why am I blanking on it? But yeah, so limbic resonance, if I'm going to paraphrase it, I'm probably going to get it wrong. But like, basically, it's sort of like your limbic system fires off like all these good feelings like serotonin and all that sort of thing when you're looking at like a face as if i was hugging you basically yeah because we're 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 humans like it seeing another face sparks a, 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 a you know um something in your brain that is different than like looking at an object and um and so that that sort of mental trigger um makes sort of like this one-to-one -one communication that you're getting from uh, uh a creator it's like it's scalable oh i know the term i was thinking of it's like a parasocial bond so it's like it's a one-to-many it's like a scalable friendship you're you're feeling because you're watching these people you're like looking in their eyes every day it's firing your your limbic system it feels like a friend your your brain is like a monkey brain it doesn't really deep down know the difference between seeing somebody's face up close in a monitor versus in person. So you, you're getting a lot of the exact same feelings, but the difference is it's parasocial. So it's, it's scalable. Like thousands or millions of people are getting the same feeling that, you know, just whatever, like a hundred years ago was limited to one-to-one -one communication. And, um, and, and that's why you see this sort of level of dedication with creators in particular, I think creators who um, really open up their lives and sort of speak directly to the camera, look directly in the camera um, are very uh, vulnerable. Those are the creators who are able to galvanize their audience and, and sort of, um, move mountains more or less because everybody watching feels like this is this is their friend and like you know if your friend recommends you do something you you do it and um and and i think people really overlook like that 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 relationship is not something that like to your, to your point you saw this like it's not something that slick editing can overcome like you can watch a beautiful movie and maybe they they plug a product and, you know, you might love the movie, but you're not going to go out and necessarily buy the product. But if your friend says, you know, 
texts you, hey, you got to try this thing, like then you'll probably do it. And I think people overlook that. People, people follow other people. People want relationships. That's, that's the driving force in, in society. Um, and it's not something, it's certainly not something that I believe slick production can overcome. I, I could be wrong, but thus far, I haven't seen anything that really convinces me <laughs> I am. You're absolutely right. When I saw that, I even realized, oh, but that's why the slight fuck ups or when they correct themselves yeah. and they leave it in, they leave it in at the edit stage, which we both know they could have cut it out, but yeah. it humanizes them. It participated in that semblance of authenticity. Authentic is a word that has been thrown around a lot as a currency on these platforms. And it's, I would say it's a semblance of authenticity. I, I'm not going to name names, but I once visited um, a French agency that had some of the biggest YouTube stars in France. And they all started from their bedroom, right? Now these bedrooms are reproduced in an office with the same couch in a little bit. Sets, yeah. And it's a set. And they all side by side. It looked like a sex webcam uh, motel when you enter it. It was so industrialized. And I realized, oh, they found their authentic voice in the early years. Yeah. And now they just maintain it because it's what the audience wants. But maybe, is it still real? No. But it looks authentic and that's what matters. Even if you scratch yourself, those moments like humanize the whole thing. And, and this was really eye-opening for me because it changed the way I was looking at campaigns. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing, oh, this is gold. This is going to miss the audience despite the big budget. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't about budget anymore then. It was about the idea. Really, it yeah. wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. And like the the relationship. Yes. So many relationships. Your relationship with the creator, the relationship between the brand and the creator, and the relationship between the creator and the audience, which then transposes into the relationship between the sponsor and the audience. It's all complex stuff, human stuff, which is why I love it. Because as you know, all the other forms of marketing are so data-driven at least the intuition is still <laughs> useful somewhere. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Lately, talking about your big writings uh, that opened my eyes, I really loved the one lately about the use of enemies to oh. millions. It reminded me of Tupac, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls, but without the guns, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. East yeah, I mean, coast with no guns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing that's more galvanizing around, you know, uh, for a community than than something to sort of fight against. I think oftentimes more so than even uh, a uh, a specific message that is positive. You know, when there's a, a threat, people come together, and and you know. Twitter beefs and YouTube beefs and influencer beefs, all these things that, you know, I think a lot of them are very real, 
uh, some of them I think are more orchestrated, but the byproduct oftentimes is, you know, you, people love drama. It generates headlines. Uh, those headlines drive awareness. So maybe, you know, grows the audience. And at the same time, the existing audience feels like they need to pick a side. And so they need to defend like their person. And then they become more emotionally invested in sort of the, the creator that they really know and love. And um, it, it makes them almost more, uh, uh, more of a super fan in a lot of ways. And um, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a great strategy um, certainly not one that I feel like I could pull off just because of my, <laughs> my, my, my you know, my, my persona, it's not like, I, I don't like picking fights, but I think if, if you are someone who's comfortable with that, I think it's great, but, and the, there's a lot of different ways to approach it too. You can sort of do a very concrete enemy. You can do sort of like a perceived enemy. Like I, I, I did a newsletter recently. I, I'm not a big I don't know much about Taylor Swift, but I thought the phenomenon of her new album was really interesting. I saw everybody talking about it. Everybody at work was talking about it in, in Slack. And so I watched that, that, that YouTube video all too well. It's like this 10 minute long thing. And it's sort of like, it's really interesting how she creates an enemy to a certain degree in the form of her ex. But at the same time, she leaves it open to interpretation of like who it is. And so people can kind of project, you know, their their own ex and like, you know, Taylor Swift's journey can sort of is sort of the hero's journey. It's one of uh, about like overcoming obstacles and, and kind of growing into your own and achieving your dreams. And I think it's like it, it's it's a very universal feeling that, that, that people will tap into. And I think, um, you know, brands, I, I oftentimes think that brands should do more of it. I understand why they don't given legal and, and, you know, shareholders and all of that, but it's, it's a, it's a phenomenal strategy. If you can and, and, and also because you would be helping your competitor as a brand, because let's face it, both the people in the clash profit, from whether it's orchestrated or not. Yeah. There is a thing in the, there was a guy in French TV 20 years ago that was doing big ratings, although everybody hated him. And one executive one time told me, oh yeah, but he's the guy everybody loves to hate. Mm -hmm. So they're watching just to hate him, but they're watching by the minions. Mm -hmm. And this opened my eyes that because I really, really hated him, but I was watching. So it, I was one of those tuning in just to say, oh, he said that stupid thing again. Yeah, yeah. But that will happen when you polarize two people. You're going to get the views from the people who love you. And you're going to get the views from the people who are looking for your sweep so that they can go hate in the comments, but you're still getting the views. Yeah. So it creates that phenomenon that works for hip hop. And I got to tell you, the best marketing campaign, accidental, I've made it ever was one day at Clicksan, we got sued by Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo. And it became David against three Goliath. Yeah. They never agree on anything. And this time they agreed on suing David. Mm -hmm. Man, we multiplied our sales by 200x overnight 
That's awesome. One CNN appearance that Jen made it on Slashdot. And, but that was just, you know, something you cannot reproduce even if you try. Yeah. But it opened my eyes about having big enemies make you bigger, much bigger. Yeah, that's why a lot of people say, like, too, um, you know, pick an enemy that is bigger than yourself because suddenly <laughs> it puts you on the same playing field. As soon as they acknowledge it, it's sort of like they're almost acknowledging that, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're peers. And um, it's a, it, it can be a, a great stepping stone in a lot of ways. And that's why brands don't do it so much because the view of Coca-Cola is Pepsi-Cola doesn't even exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's too small to talk about. Let's yeah, absolutely. But you could have a... I see your idea. You're going to have it between two startups of different industries. You don't have something to lose. Instead of doing call marketing friendly like they do it now, they could do it as a fight mm -hmm. and have fun about it. KFC is very good at having fun of itself, right? But oh, my gosh. Done yeah. <laughs> They've done a great job. Oh, yeah, they're fun. The, um, talking about, you know, these big chains and big brands and all that, you said the other day that TikTok is the new mall. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think so. There's, you know, there's all these stats. I, I wish I could remember them off the top of my head. But, you know, you've probably heard the phenomenon like TikTok made me buy it. You know, people are discovering so many products and books and music from, you know, because of TikTok and, um, Dua Lipa broke from talking music. Dua Lipa broke totally from TikTok. Yeah. And Lil Nas X, like there's, there's so many, I mean, it's driving like so many of the charts and, um, and, uh, I mean, especially during COVID, you know, we're not going to stores. I mean, e-commerce is, massive like what what gen z or sorry um yeah what gen z is like going to a, a mall and shopping at the gap anymore you know they're, they're they're picking up something from the gap because they saw emma chamberlain you know <laughs> rocking a, a hoodie not because it was in the mall um it's uh you know going back to that you know or comment at the start of this about kind of like um, influencers being the new celebrities, they, they're driving culture. So, um, you know, where they are, you know, they're on, they're on TikTok, they're on YouTube. That's, that's what's moving the needle, undoubtedly. Yeah. And, and talking about, did we, 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 we mentioned his name a couple of times, but I think he's worth a few minutes of his own. Mr. Beast, uh, Jimmy Donaldson is... Really, I, we said at the beginning of the, 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 the show, for youth today, YouTube stars are the only stars. I, I feel he's the first one to really go into such high numbers that now he's beating the Hollywood stars and the stand-up comedians. And you're, he's in that rare space with The Rock, Cristiano Ronaldo, um, Kevin Hart, you know, those that can change. I, I mean, there are so many examples, and I'm, I'm sure they are yours, but what blew my mind is Beast Burgers, 
I mean, how can you open in one year so many outlets that McDonald's yeah. took 40, 50 years to get to that number? Um, and of course, there is the quality control, and it's a huge fucking upper curve. <laughs> it's a huge upper yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, the, the, the power of the brand and of the message, crazy. And now, how he grows into these localized channels, which, by the way, is something I have told all my creative friends who were popular. Coming from a video game angle, I was like, how are you not adding subtitles in all languages and mm. all your videos? It gave it got one step further though, which is to dub. Yeah. Like in the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's how we received all the TV series in the 1980s. Dub so smart. So smart and so successful so fast. You know, I when I was giving that advice to other creators, I thought they would see incremental growth over time. Mm -hmm. With him, it's like overnight. Obviously, it's not an overnight. He worked very hard to get to that point, but yeah, I mean, he, he does something with Coinbase. They gain how much? Four billion dollar in valuation in the stock exchange. I can't it's, remember, but yeah, he he moved. I think crazy. he moved the app to like number one in finance or something like that. Yeah, but four billion dollar in stock exchange valuation. This tells me that even the old guards buying shares are like, oh, you are brand associated to Mr. Beast. I don't watch that. But my kids do, so I'm going to buy a few shares because this seems to be a pretty hot move. It's mm -hmm. that level that even if you don't know him, you know him somehow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? A hundred percent. I mean, he gets more views than, you know, major TV networks. I mean, I, I was looking, uh, uh, I, I wrote an article a while ago about sort of like live streaming specifically and how um and, and sort of comparing the numbers and how live streaming commerce was going to be a next big wave and you know live streamers who you know are not as big as mr beast are getting more views than you know the 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 nba which is you know if you think about it like the nba is considered this behemoth but like a preseason game was getting less than a million views and, you know, streamers, some of the top streamers can get that in real time. You know, now Mr. Beast is getting, I think I looked at the squid games video and it was over 60 million views, whatever oh, that might've been yesterday. That, yeah. So uh, one of my clients talked about it on Friday and then I watched it again yesterday because of that, because I wanted to verify a detail in it. It was at 77 million views. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if more people have seen that at this point than the actual Netflix series. <laughs> I don't know. It might be close, but he's getting close. He's beating Super Bowl commercial numbers because you have like 100 million, mm. 110 million people viewing the Super Bowl. I'm not sure if all 110 million stay for the ads. I know it's an event in the US to watch the, the commercials of the Super Bowl, but not to the point that I, I think he's going to beat the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think so. And if you think about it, it's like you could take two Mr. Beast videos and beat the Super Bowl, and it's going to be cheaper and probably more impactful for not every brand, but for most brands. I think in particular, yeah. if your goal is... It's great, you can still get five 
of Mr. Beast's inspirations for 30 seconds of Super Bowl commercial. Yeah, probably. It's I mean, gonna go up because now he did the Squid Game and they do their job really well. So every quarter it goes up a notch, and well deserved, you know. When I, when the price goes up, I'm like, damn it, I got to pay for that. That for my next slide, but I'm like, well played. It's yeah, not uh, absolutely. Ego. It's not ego. It's really number driven and justified. And I shouldn't say that on air, but <laughs> because it goes against my buying, but. I feel like YouTube stars are still underpriced compared to the price of working with a Hollywood star. Like Liam agree. Neeson, where you're going to put $1 million in his pocket to shoot the damn commercial. It doesn't give you no distribution for it. You still have to buy the airtime. When you compare that, you realize YouTube stars are still pretty affordable. Yeah, and I, I think also the going back to that whole thing about limbic resonance i think the the sort of action that a creator will drive in my experience has been higher than celebrities mm -hmm. obviously there's always the exception that proves the rule but generally speaking particularly with younger audiences creators are the way to go yeah yeah definitely Ex the few exceptions i found were athletes but who understood social media and we're tapping into the rhythm thing, the private life thing, and they've been mm -hmm. doing it for five, six years. And, and it's actually funny when you analyze soccer, of course you have your Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah. Messi, but under it, you have sometimes better uh, footballers who have less followers than funny guys who post it. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. those athletes, they have both the champion, uh, you know, adoration that you look at things and they do things you couldn't do. And sometimes the credibility, especially if you sell sports stuff, uh, sports apparel, it's like if he uses it, it must be good. And then they have the funny aspect too. When they have the, the, the combo, they're good to work with as well. But, but you're right that some of the traditional stars, not so much. They don't give you the conversion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's always an exception, but generally, I think creators are more bang for your buck. Yeah. And, and they also, now that when I, when I pitched to other people, there was another trick I use a lot when somebody opened my eyes. I don't remember who, but I say, don't forget that with a YouTube creator, TikTok creator, you don't have the old dilemma of how much do we put into creative and how much do we put into distribution? Because mm -hmm. they're doing both. Yeah. So they're also doing the creative. If you don't try to dictate stuff and script them and leave them free, they probably come up with a better creative than what the expensive agency in Los Angeles or London would have come up with over two weeks for you. Yeah. And we've seen too, even um, when we take, when we work with creators and leverage their content. Uh, for as as paid assets for for ads, even that generally performs better. I shouldn't say generally; it performs better as well. Yeah, yeah, same here, same here. And then the latest one is on TikTok because obviously on TikTok it's cheaper to. It's still early stage somehow. It shouldn't be, but it still is. Yeah. And sometimes you get the, the rights to read, to distribute the content cheaper than you would on YouTube or on TV. 
and then you're surprised. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're sometimes you're very surprised. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's like day and night. Um, but yeah, I like that activity too. Uh, going back to Mr. Beast, there is one last thing, which is recent, and I think it's genuine, and I love the impact of it, Team Seas, and there is Team Trees as well. Do you think this is more to be seen from in the next... I think this is recent, Casey Neistat, Mr. Beast, using your powers... There are plenty to do big in, uh, big change. And it's, what I liked about Team C is, is that it's not just about raising money. They went physically to the beach in Santa and Domingo, Dominican Republic, I think, and cleaned it up. Yeah. They put in the time. And that is such a great example, I think, for everybody watching as well, not just for other creators, for everybody without followers. You can also clean up a little bit. What do you think of that? So I think what we're seeing with like Team C's, Team Trees, or, you know, even with what, um, you know, what a lot of these folks have done with other charities, it, it, it ties into sort of this creator ethos. It's like very DIY. It's like, why, why do I need, you know, why do I need to get somebody's permission? Why don't I just do it? Like, that's sort of how so many creators have been successful is sort of ignoring the perceived barriers and embracing the kind of opportunities at their fingertips and, and making the most of them. Um, and, you know, you look at what corporations are doing, not, not all, but a lot. There's, there's an element of sort of greenwashing and sort of, um, I think oftentimes it's about signaling things versus substance. And I think creators really, you know, they're, they're used to just making things happen. And, and I think what we're seeing is this sort of um, embracing of, of sort of, well, like if, if the problem is trash in the ocean, let's just go out and get trash out of the ocean. And like, you know, how complicated does it need to be? I mean, obviously it's complicated. I don't think anybody's ever looking that, but the, 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 the problem is fundamentally. Get started. Yeah. Let's get started. And it's complicated, but let's not sp spend 30 years analyzing how complicated it is before removing the first piece of trash. A hundred percent. It's something that resonates with me for two reasons. First of all, because of that game I'm making about you know, disabled heroes and athletes. And I hear the word awareness too much. And I always say it's not about disability awareness anymore. We've got the telethon, we've got the Paralympics. It's about action and accessibility and integration and actual moving from awareness to action. And with climate change, I have that frustration even more because you, I'm not sure if you were born back then, but in 1984, we had Midnight Oil our beds are burning, number one hit song across the planet. And it was about climate change. 1984, we yeah. had a hit song about it. So I would say that's the piece about awareness. Yeah. What do we do with that awareness now? Just say, oh, I'm aware, but I keep doing the same thing and I don't mm -hmm. fix the problem. I, I was really frustrated about the old media 
not giving us real tangible action. Yeah. And I feel like if this comes from the creators with that young generation who was just looking for purpose and now you have these basically entrepreneurs with a camera, well, maybe they can move from awareness to action. Yeah. And I would love to see that because I have kids and I hope we save the planet, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I remember now the thing I was going to say was um, Gen Z in particular really prioritizes, you know, doing good and and, and all these things. And I think um, it's nice because it's, it's sort of mutually beneficial. It's, all right, we're going to make things happen and it's going to fuel my brand. I mean, like, if you're a creator, it becomes a win-win. I mean, you look at Mr. Beast and the amount of PR he's gotten and goodwill he's generated, I'm sure... It, it it's not simply a um, a good altruistic thing, but I would imagine that it's going to pay uh, dividends from a business standpoint as well, which is phenomenal. I think that's good. <laughs> yes. As an economist, I think it's better than the status quo. Because if you think about it, the way I put it is doing good while doing well. Yeah. What's the problem with that? For example, when people tell us why Big Karma is not a foundation, well, yeah. because we want to be commercially successful. That's yeah. why. Because yeah. it's not a charity, because it's a market. And it, when people are like, yeah, but still, are you then not exploiting? And I'm like, I can make a game about something positive and make money from it. Or I can yeah. make GTA about shooting guns and robbing cars and make money from it. What's better? Because yeah. we're not talking about an ideal world here. We're talking about what are we doing? And I feel like I was like that at the beginning of my career. And like you, because of self-doubt, insecurity, I felt like I had to listen to the old guys and become a cynic. And then later I realized, no, I don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> but it took me decades of building my confidence. I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> but I think these creators have it at a young age and they have the freedom to do it. And, and I wish them better. I wish them an, a, a, an amazing amount of luck with Same. these things. I hope and, they become extremely wealthy doing good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The new generation solving. It's like the Jerry Seinfeld episode, right? You cannot have both. You cannot be friend and have sex. It's the same. You cannot be wealthy yeah. and do good at the same time maybe we'll see the youtubers yeah. are taking the challenge <laughs> yeah absolutely all right my friends thank you so much for, for yeah, being with awesome. us today thanks and for having me yeah it was a great talk as expected i was excited for this and you didn't disappoint everybody at home i hope you enjoyed it and learned more about youtube tiktok and this generation of creators and influencer marketing if you want to support Big Karma, patreon.com slash Big Karma. That's where you buy our next cup of coffee and a few other things like lights and stuff. <laughs> Thank awesome. you for your time. Make Karma be Thank with you. you, Brendan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye -bye.